Welcome to the inaugural podcast of the Journal of Neuroophthalmology. I'm Dr. Prem Subramanian, the online content editor for the journal and an associate professor of ophthalmology at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. On behalf of the editor-in-chief of the journal, Dr. Lanning Klein, I'd like to thank you for joining us today as we interview Dr. Jeffrey Goldberg. Dr. Goldberg is Associate Professor of Ophthalmology at the Bascom Palmer Eye Institute of the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine, and we will be discussing his recent article in the journal entitled Four Steps to Optic Nerve Regeneration. This article elaborates on many of the challenges facing us in our efforts to restore optic nerve function after injury or disease. So Jeff, thank you for joining us today. And I'd like to start out by asking you uh, uh, an initial question about your article, which is that most of the experimental data on optic nerve regeneration come from mechanical injury models. And we know in patients, they have other types of acute optic neuropathy, such as optic neuritis or ischemic optic neuropathy. And do you think there are any significant differences in the factors involved in RGC survival in these types of diseases compared to the mechanical injury models? Well, I think that's a really important question. Uh, of course, there are many optic neuropathies that damage or injure retinal ganglion cell axons in the optic nerve. Um, optic neuritis, as you mentioned, likely injure, leads to axon injury in the optic nerve. Ischemic optic neuropathy is another where uh, cutoff of blood th flow essentially causes a stroke in the optic nerve. Uh, glaucoma is another and possibly the most common optic neuropathy, and there's now very good evidence that the damage, both from clinical evidence and preclinical or animal model evidence, that the damage to retinal ganglion cells is at least in part initiated at their axons in the optic nerve. And then finally, traumatic, which is uh, the most common model used in animal research, but is probably the least common of all of those in, in the human uh, set of diseases and degenerations. I would say that we think all of these optic neuropathies likely share the same pathophysiology of retinal ganglion cell death. Uh, all of them involve damaging the axon, and all of them are followed at some time later, although the timing can be variable, by retinal ganglion cell degeneration and death. Now, we don't know yet what are the signals that come back from the optic nerve after injury to the cell body. We don't know what those signals are exactly, but we have a lot of good hypotheses that in any of these diseases in any of these models, they probably include cutting off retinal ganglion cells from transport of key target-derived survival signals, and these could be neurotrophic factors or other signals. But we think it's probably more than just that, because supplying those signals to the retinal ganglion cell bodies in the eye, in the retina, usually does not give anything close to complete survival protection. Thankfully, we have a lot of really good models that are being developed by many investigators that can really address that question directly and look at the mechanisms of survival. We have excellent models of uh, glaucoma elevating intraocular pressure in the eye. Uh, there's a viral approach Abe Clark has developed, a 
Microbeeb, Dave Calkins have developed, and all of these have added to the classical uh, approaches where you knock out the venous outflow to the eye in order to raise the pressure. And those have demonstrated that there's an axon injury at the optic nerve head in animal models. And now, more recently, we have really excellent models of non-arteritic ischemic optic neuropathy. In particular, Steve Bernstein with Neil Miller have done an excellent job both in rodents and in non-human primates in developing ischemic optic neuropathy models. Uh, and these are also really helping add to the picture both of the consistencies with the classical trauma models as well as the differences as they may come up. Well, thank you for summarizing those models so nicely for us. And as you indicated in your article, and as you discussed a bit already, uh, the retinal ganglion cell survival is influenced by any of these types of injuries, but getting the cells to survive is only one step in terms of trying to restore function. And so can you tell us a little bit more about how the environment, for example, affects the optic nerve elongation, uh, axonal growth, and what studies are out there that help us understand that better? Sure. That's been a really interesting question. And in fact, it's that question that got me really interested in neuroscience and interested in retinal ganglion cell biology. It was over a century ago that Cajal and his colleagues, uh, really at the dawn of modern cellular neuroscience, observed that the axons of neurons in the central nervous system which includes retinal ganglion cell axons going through the optic nerve, don't regrow after an injury. They don't regenerate back towards their targets after an injury. And over 25 years ago, uh, in the birth of what I would say is sort of the more modern molecular neuroscience era, that observation was uh, repeated and in particular, uh, an investigator, Albert Aguayo, showed that if you attach a peripheral nerve into a central pathway, then there is regeneration in the central nervous system, including in the optic nerve. And that really focused the entire field for the last 25 years or so on looking at what are the environmental inhibitors of axon regeneration present in the central nervous system that must not be present in the peripheral nervous system. And since that time, Martin Schwab and many others have really done seminal work identifying many of these typically glial-associated inhibitors of regeneration. So these are proteins or lipids found on astrocytes and oligodendrocytes in the optic nerve that actively signal retinal ganglion cell axons to not regrow in the adult mammal, including in human. And so it's been really interesting because knocking out those genes for those proteins in adult uh, mammals, model systems, both in the optic nerve and in the spinal cord, where a lot of the research is also done, has demonstrated that blocking these signals, either one at a time or even a few at a time, certainly enhances regeneration and certainly enhances recovery of function in these animal model systems. However, it's probably not enough 
at least as far as we understand it right now, to improve the environment. In all of these studies to date, knocking out one or even many of these inhibitory environmental signals only allows a small fraction of the injured neurons to regenerate. Only a small fraction of retinal ganglion cells will regrow down the optic nerve in these studies and at a very slow rate. That observation has contributed to, at least for some of us, turning attention towards not just the environment, which is important, but also to the neurons themselves and asking, what are the intrinsic controls over regeneration? What are the signals within the neurons that control their ability to regenerate? It turns out that in embryonic and even early postnatal mammals right after birth, there is regenerative capacity, and that goes away through development. And that's given us an ability to ask the question, what changes, not just in the environment, but in the neurons themselves during development that restrict the retinal ganglion cell or other neurons' ability to regrow to their target? So, Jeff, in terms of pushing the retinal ganglion cells into that more active growth state so they can elongate axons, there have been a number of advances in our understanding of the transcription factors that might be involved. In your article, you mentioned some work going on in your lab as well as others, and in particular on Krupple-like transcription factors. Can you tell us a little bit more about the role that they might play and also give us some of your thoughts on how closely related the processes are that will encourage axonal elongation and retinal ganglion cell survival itself? Well, that's a really excellent question. Certainly, that has been a major focus uh, for me and my lab over these years. From the observation that overcoming the negative inhibitory signals in the environment is not enough to get a high level of regeneration, we and others began focusing on the retinal ganglion cells themselves, the neurons themselves, to ask what might their intrinsic controls over regeneration include. In particular, it's been observed that the embryonic, and even right after birth, the mammal, the mammalian central nervous system, there is a certain amount of regeneration, and then that goes away through development. So we've been interested in what are the developmental changes in the neurons themselves that might regulate their ability to regenerate. We discovered this past year a family of transcription factors that we're very interested in that you mentioned called Krupple-like factors. This is a family of transcription factors that appears to regulate capacity, intrinsic capacity for axon growth and regeneration in the neurons themselves. And we've just begun, really, our studies to determine how manipulating those transcription factors and their gene targets might be a way to enhance regeneration in the optic nerve. But many others have also made significant progress in this regard. For example, Zhigang He at Harvard has shown that suppressing the activity of two other signaling molecules in retinal ganglion cells 
greatly enhances retinal ganglion cell axon regeneration through the optic nerve in animal models. And this has been very exciting for the field. Now, you mentioned also this question of differentiating between retinal ganglion cell survival processes and axon elongation or regeneration processes. Now, from the outside of the cell, they seem to share, those two seem to share a lot of signaling properties the same. Now, you raise another important question, and that is about the signaling of retinal ganglion cell survival on the one hand and axon regeneration on the other. And it turns out that the proteins on the outside of the cell that tell retinal ganglion cells to survive are the same ones that optimally tell them to regrow their axons. And these proteins bind to receptors on retinal ganglion cells and activate similar signaling pathways on the inside. But it turns out that although these signals converge on very similar signaling pathways, we've begun to be able to distinguish differences between signals for retinal ganglion cell survival and signals for axon regeneration. And there are two differences that we've been able to figure out so far. One is there are, it turns out, differences in the intracellular signaling pathways between survival signaling and regeneration signaling. And another important distinction is the location of that signaling. It turns out that to get retinal ganglion cells and other neurons to survive, you can provide these signals at the cell body or at the axon, where those signals then get internalized and transported down the axon back to the cell body. But in order to get retinal ganglion cell axon regeneration, it's not sufficient to provide these signals at the cell body. You have to provide them where the axon is. So it may be the case moving forward as we make more progress on addressing both survival signaling and axon regeneration signaling that we may be able to provide some signals to retinal ganglion cell cell bodies, for example, with intravitreal injections or similar, but we may have to provide some signals to their axons in the injured optic nerve. And it's going to be a very interesting area of research moving forward to figure that out. One of the major challenges, as you know, is trying to provide therapy at a time where you can actually prevent retinal ganglion cell death and even the formation of things like the glial scar or other alterations in the environment that will ultimately make regeneration fail. Do you have any ideas as to timing in terms of the experiments that you are doing or therapies that people may envision in the future? I think obviously when we think about translating what we're doing in the lab towards patient therapies, that's a critical, critical question. And I've been involved in constructing some early phase trials, for example, for ischemic optic neuropathy, where that has been a critical question, specifically how long of a window after the ischemic optic neuropathy insult are we willing to wait before trying a new therapy? And this is important because if we wait too long and retinal ganglion cells have died or passed some irreversible point, then the therapy may appear ineffective, 
when in fact had we gotten the therapy to the patient sooner, maybe it would show a positive effect. Now, evidence in the spinal cord from Mary Bungie and her colleagues over the years, as, as well as many others, have suggested that the same treatments that work in acute models, acute injury models, may also work in a chronic injury. A key difference, however, between spinal cord injury and optic nerve injury, at least in these models, is that the neurons in the, from the spinal cord injuries die on a much slower time course, and in the spinal cord sometimes not at all. So late intervention for spinal cord injury appears to be much more plausible. That means for thinking about retinal ganglion cells and optic nerve injuries or ischemia, we may have to intervene quite quickly at least to enhance the survival of retinal ganglion cells. And enhancing their survival may lengthen the time window that we can then think about treating their axons or the optic nerve to enhance regeneration. So because retinal ganglion cells die quickly, we may have to be very sensitive in optic neuropathies about the time window. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us today, Jeff. This is clearly very exciting work. has come a long way in the past several years, and we all look forward to seeing what kind of progress is made in the years to come. This podcast represents the copyrighted content of the Journal of Neuroophthalmology. All views expressed in this podcast represent the opinions of the participants. It does not necessarily reflect the views of the Journal of Neuroophthalmology, its editors, or the North American Neuroophthalmology Society. To find out more about NANOS and its journal, the Journal of Neuroophthalmology, please visit www.nanosweb.org.